We won Best Podcast of Portland in my hometown paper, which is pretty freaking awesome. So thank you to all of you who voted for us. And if you're here because you saw us in the Willamette Week, welcome. We're super glad you're here. The history you're going to learn here can't be learned almost anywhere else. And the community around this podcast is made up of some of the most enthusiastic, wonderful nerds the internet has to offer. However, I'm going to need you to go back to episode one. I'm going to talk about some pretty heavy Anglo-Saxon cultural stuff in this episode, and it will totally make sense once you catch up. But if you dive straight in without context, you're probably going to get lost. So trust me, go back to episode one, and don't worry, we'll still be here when you catch up. All right, let's get the show started. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 285 Full Court Press. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to John, Robert, and Kate for signing up already. The era of Athelstan is one of contradictions. His behavior, his policies, his wars, pretty much everything that's happening during this period seems to have an element of duality. This is a man who is discussed in terms of piety and his generosity with both the church and also with his subjects. And there is plenty of real evidence that Athelstan was a kind king and a role model to those around him, and that he took his role as a ruler seriously and with care. But Athelstan was also a war leader, and he was ruthless in his pursuit of victory. And he used those powers of war often and with great effect. In just a few years, he earned a reputation of being a militaristic powerhouse. And it was a reputation that was well-earned. By the end of 927, all his neighbors had either been violently conquered or had been compelled to submit to his rule through military arms, or at least the threat of it. And many of the actions that he took on these campaigns defy what we would understand as the actions of a good person but he was an effective king. And for the people of England living in the late 920s, he was probably regarded as a very good king. For the first time in generations, Britain was enjoying a period of peace. The wars, the raids, and the internal struggles that had marked this era had all suddenly come to an end. And that cannot be overstated. In the 10th century, if your kingdom was at war, you were at war. During Athelstan's time, every plowshare was expected to provide two mounted men for military campaigns, and that meant that the Ferd wasn't drawn from a small professional volunteer military that was supplemented by corporate mercenary operatives. Instead, the Ferd was drawn from your community, from your family, and a lot of times, from you directly. And because the Ferd had a rotating system, and because these kingdoms were pretty much constantly fighting with someone, if you weren't drawn up for this campaign, you almost certainly will be drawn up later. Probably later this year. No one was safe. And the constant need to fight in these wars meant that farmers were being pulled from the fields, given weapons, and sent out on campaigns from which they might never return. And if they were lucky and did return, many times they'd come back injured. Furthermore, 
life goes on. Just because pirates were raiding or kings were battling for territory didn't mean that farmers were no longer responsible for food rent. They were. But now, their farms were lacking field hands, and those losses might be permanent. So all of this resulted in cascading hardships that impacted everyone. And when armies marched against your kingdom, or when raiders came seeking loot, it wasn't on some faraway battlefield. They were marching to your home. And while they might not strike your village this time, there was no guarantee that you'd always be that lucky. Life in the 9th and 10th centuries cannot be accurately described without also taking into account the effect that this constant cloud of violence was having upon every level of society. No one could escape it. And then Athelstan acquired Jorvik, and he obtained the submission of the kings of Britain. And suddenly, the wars stopped. The raids stopped. Now with the annexation, suddenly Athelstan had a lot of new land under his control, which meant that he could expect military service from those lands. But interestingly, Athelstan appears to have been lenient with his military demands following his victory. The constant tours of duty that were a part of life for so many people in Britain were suddenly put on hold, and we entered a period of peace that lasted years. It must have felt like utopia. And I want to point out that while this period of peace was likely connected to the aggressive military posture early in Athelstan's reign, it was also likely connected to his diplomatic efforts. Those marriages that we've been speaking about were brilliant, partially because they allowed Athelstan to have familial and diplomatic ties with powerful nobles, and they were nobles who were a comfortable distance away. By choosing matches with families that were so far from his borders, Athelstan was ensuring that he was getting allies out of those marriages rather than claimants to his throne. And meanwhile, Athelstan was taking advantage of this respite to enhance his kingdom, and he began to accept refugees from the continent, and chief among them were refugees from nearby Brittany. You see, while England was in a rare moment of peace, the Scandinavians based in Nantes and elsewhere were causing all manner of havoc on this rocky coastal peninsula in the northern part of what's now France. And it was getting so bad that even the nobility, who had claims to the throne, were fleeing the region. And that's how you end up with Alan of Brittany being raised in Athelstan's court. But the point is that the whole kingdom was under a constant and sustained assault. And while the political institutions were valuable targets for any conquering army, the religious institutions, which housed tremendous amounts of wealth and were relatively poorly guarded, were hard to resist. So suddenly we see an enormous amount of Breton refugees fleeing to England. Pretty much anyone who could afford to make the trip got the hell out of there. And this was a boon for England. At a base level, it was a boost in manpower, but more than that, it was a boost in clergy. The fact is that England needed learned people, and they were coming in droves. And of particular interest to Athelstan, many of those clergy were arriving with their holy relics. This migration, encouraged by Athelstan, resulted in English being suddenly awash in Breton relics. And in particular, Exeter housed a great deal of them, with relics from at least nine Breton religious houses being relocated there. New Minster and Winchester was also a home for Breton relics, and there's even evidence that an entire Breton religious community was relocated to Wareham. And all of this was gratefully welcomed by Athelstan, and for good reason, 
Because here's the thing about these relics. They weren't just medieval magic items, though they certainly were that. They were also tourist attractions. If you wanted wealthy and powerful people to come to your kingdom, and if you're a king, you should, well, then you need to get some relics. So for Athelstan, this wasn't just a matter of piety. It was also a matter of economics. And as England enjoyed its rare moment of peace, Athelstan found himself profiting from Brittany's misfortune. And thus, he was able to enhance his kingdom's wealth and status even further. So, things were going pretty well for the brand new kingdom of England. But it wasn't without its challenges. In particular, there was a cultural problem that was bubbling just underneath the surface. And it's one that might not have jumped out at you at first. See, for us, England has existed for about a thousand years. And as a consequence, it feels timeless and constant. In fact, just by saying the word England, you're likely to conjure some images in your mind. Now, the images that it brings are as varied as the English. But one thing that tends to be fairly consistent in the public imagination is the shape of England. England is England-shaped. But we're at the point in history where that shape was still being defined. And as such, a lot of the things that we take for granted, like how York is part of England, aren't even remotely sure bets. And a lot of the cultural changes and developments that we're talking about are a direct response to the people of England working out exactly what shape England should be. And think about who we're talking about here. This was an island that had a long experience with hegemonies rising and falling. And in many ways, this new kingdom of the English looked a lot like previous hegemonies. It expanded rapidly, it resulted in an incredible consolidation of power, and it coerced submission through threats, displays of power, and outright violence. It looked like an Anglo-Saxon hegemony. And consequently, while we know that England was going to turn out to be something different, and that what was happening here was a struggle to reunify the remains of the Heptarchy into a single kingdom, for the people living at the time, they were very likely looking at what was happening through the lens of previous, now long gone, hegemonies. So while Athelstan didn't have any wars to fight and so he had a chance to catch his breath, he was still dealing with a fairly significant social, political, and cultural challenge. Because he was trying to create a new political body, and many of the previous ruling order that inhabited the newly annexed territories were still responding to his actions as if they were simply serving under a hegemony, like in the days of Offa. And the difference between those two is extreme. With a hegemony, once the ruler dies, you've got a good chance of reasserting your independence. But if you're just an annexed territory in a unified kingdom, well, when the king dies, nothing really changes, because there's no independence to be asserted. You're just a territory. Look at it this way. When Barack Obama lost the presidency, the West Coast didn't become the Kingdom of Cascadia. I mean, I'd be lying if I said we didn't consider it, but ultimately, the shape of America stayed the same following the transfer of power, because America isn't a hegemony. And when you look at the record of this period, it's clear that Athelstan saw himself as more than just a hegemonic king. His actions, and the way he was referred to in his own documents, indicate that he had imperial ambitions. Scholars sometimes refer to his efforts as an attempt at becoming an English Charlemagne, and I don't think that's misplaced. But like Charlemagne, 
Athelstan became acutely aware of the limitations of his power and how difficult it could be to convince people that they were part of a single people when they were already attached to an identity that told them that they were all different. In fact, as late as the 11th century, there were still laws that broke England into three. Wessex, Mercia, and Danelaw. And that's the 11th century, which is around the time of William the Conqueror. The divisions that people were feeling were deep. And as a result, the idea that everyone was part of a single people and a single kingdom was going to take some time. Generations, in fact. But Athelstan was working on it. And his imperial aspirations were quite clear. And chief among his efforts during these years of peace was the difficult work of convincing Northumbria that they were actually part of a unified kingdom of England. And while that was a difficult task, it wasn't impossible. After all, for centuries, Wessex and Mercia had been separate kingdoms. When Athelstan was growing up, in fact, even though Mercia was often treated as a sub-kingdom of Wessex, the two kingdoms still had their own royalty, their own institutions, and they were still separate kingdoms. Even when they were subjugated, they still had a king, or at worst, an elderman who ruled over Mercia as a king, basically. But by the 920s, that had all come to an end, and Mercia now was simply part of Wessex. We also saw the same thing happen with Kent earlier in West Saxon history. Kent used to be an independent kingdom, but now it was just part of Wessex. So this was something that Athelstan would have known was possible. And looking at how his forebears had handled this issue, he would have known that the West Saxon method of annexation had some pretty clear elements to it. The first was a familial connection to the ruling dynasty. This is what would give you a claim to the throne. For example, when King Edward annexed Mercia, his niece was sitting on the throne. And as a consequence, he was able to take the position that he was the eldest member of the dynasty and that Mercia should fall under his control, not under a young, untested female member of his dynasty. Now granted, given how Mercia responded, not everyone agreed with him, but he still had a claim through dynastic links. And with Kent, they had an even closer connection. The House of Wessex was descended from Kentish kings. So right from the start, they had a claim to the throne of Kent. Now, the second element was culture. Kentish and West Saxon culture was very close. And considering the fact that the House of Wessex was Kentish, there probably weren't all that many people demanding to know why they are being ruled over by foreigners. Similarly, the House of Wessex had numerous Mercian ties. Alfred's wife was Mercian nobility, which made Edward half Mercian. And ties like that add legitimacy to the whole idea of unity. After all, you can credibly make the argument that we're all part of the same people, or at least the royal family straddles the cultural gap and can and should rule over both. The third element was time. Wessex slowly absorbed kingdoms rather than outright seizing them. With Kent, they allowed the kingdom of Kent to be jointly ruled for quite some time. Wessex and Kent had their own kings, though one would be an overking over the other. And as a result, functionally, they were a single kingdom. And actually, there are several sons of Athelwolf who held both the thrones of Kent and Wessex at the same time. But by allowing Kent to have its own monarch, it gave the region a chance to get used to the merger. Mercia was similar. When Athelred of Mercia offered his fealty to Alfred, he continued to rule over Mercia. But rather than being listed in West Saxon documents as king, 
He was simply the Lord of Mercia. And then Wessex just gave the process some time to play out, while also continually pushing the ball down the field. And that's why Athelred was never granted the title of monarch, nor was his wife and successor, Athelflaed, nor her successor, Elfwyn. All three of them ruled. None of them were granted the full title. Consequently, while Athelred very well may have imagined that he was submitting to a hegemonic power when he bowed to Alfred, and that Mercia would remain a kingdom, and eventually, potentially even be independent, that's not what happened. It took generations, but the end result was that Mercia would no longer be regarded as a kingdom. You can also see this method of annexation being played out in East Anglia. About a decade earlier, King Edward defeated the East Anglians and annexed their kingdom. And even though he had no dynastic connection to the kingdom, and due to their history with the Dane law, there wasn't much of a cultural connection, Edward still started the ball rolling. And he did so in a manner very similar to what they did with Mercia. He appointed an elderman to govern it. And this was pretty wise. Part of what made East Anglia such a well-defended kingdom was also the reason why it was hard to govern from Winchester. Namely, it was hard to reach due to the fens. Having someone rule from within the territory would be much more efficient, and granting them the title of elderman rather than king would start the process of getting rid of the perspective that East Anglia was a kingdom within a kingdom, and instead was just a territory. But as for who would serve as that elderman, well, Edward couldn't appoint one of the locals. After all, they'd just been at war with Wessex. So handing the kingdom back to one of them was a bit too risky. So instead, Edward elevated a powerful elderman from southern Mercia, someone who would definitely be loyal to him. And then in 927, which was the same year when Athelstan received the submission of virtually all of Britain, that elderman of East Anglia died. And consequently, Athelstan had to make a choice. Who would you replace him with? And considering that East Anglia was so wild and wooly that Athelstan was still working on importing German clerics just to reform it, their local aristocracy wouldn't do. So instead, he chose a powerful elderman whose family controlled lands in Wessex and Mercia. And probably critically, he was also an elderman of Mercia, who back in the day served under Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia. And funnily enough, the elderman that King Athelstan appointed was also named Athelstan. So he began to be known as Athelstan Half-King, which actually should give you an idea of how much power and influence he commanded in East Anglia. And are you noticing a theme here with how King Athelstan was handling the annexation of East Anglia? We have German clerics being sent to reform their church, and Mercian eldermen being sent to reform their administration. Even though Athelstan wasn't marching around and ruling East Anglia directly, he was appointing individuals who were carrying out those desires and bringing the whole region in line with the rest of England. It was a very hands-on method of annexation. And the point with all this is that Athelstan knew the model for how to absorb kingdoms. But the trouble was that Northumbria didn't fit that model. Like East Anglia, there wasn't a clear familial link between Jorvik and the House of Wessex. The best Athelstan had was the marriage between Citric and his sister, but that only lasted a year and it produced no children. And it might have resulted in a little bit of regicide. So not exactly the stuff that annexations were built on. Furthermore, the fact is that Wessex, now England, had never dealt with anything like Jorvik. It was large, 
It was militaristic. It had a shared border with the rest of England. It was far from Wessex, both geographically and also culturally. And rather than having a history of cooperation, Northumbria and Jorvik had a long history of conflict with Wessex and Mercia. Furthermore, the people that they did have a history of cooperation with were the Scots and the Danes. And even worse, they still had close ties with Dublin. And those ties were close enough that some of the northerners favored being ruled over by the Danes. And this wasn't just the Danes who happened to settle in Jorvik. Historian Simeon of Durham ranted about how faithless the English Northumbrians were because they wanted Scandinavian rather than English rulers. This wasn't a friendly territory. And the biggest problem for Athelstan was how quickly he acquired it. Historically, rapprochement was something that was accomplished very slowly. You did it bit by bit and eventually convinced the desired kingdom that their interests were aligned with yours. You delicately eased them into the idea. You woo them. Basically, this was political foreplay. But with Jorvik, Athelstan apparently didn't have the patience for that, and he did the geopolitical version of a drunken Tinder date. But now is the morning after, and he wants to propose. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying there are easier ways to do it. But here we are. So the method of annexation that Wessex had used in Kent and Mercia and was currently using in East Anglia relied on a cultural, geographic, and familial connection. And that just wasn't possible with Jorvik. So what do you do instead? How did Athelstan handle this? Well, we're not 100% sure. The records for what Athelstan did up there are incomplete. But thanks to some surviving charters and related documents, we can see the outlines of how he tried to convince everyone to sign up for Team England. And his solution was, in a word, bribery. To begin with, you had the northern archbishops, and they were powerful, and they had tremendous amounts of influence upon the views of the population. So Athelstan granted them huge amounts of land. Jorvik also had its own mint, and that was incredibly lucrative. So Athelstan granted exclusive control of that mint to a single powerful noble who just happened to be an ally of his in the region. And that noble was now impossibly powerful, and due to the royal largesse, he was incentivized to remain loyal. It also looks like Athelstan might have allowed the elderman of Bamburgh to expand his influence, and thus his lands. However, we need to be careful with this one because it's purely an academic theory. We simply don't know for certain whether or not that happened because our records of Jorvik are really poor. We also see signs that he was trying to reform the coinage in the north, similar to what he was doing in Wessex, East Anglia, and Mercia. And this move might sound a bit fussy, but it would have had the effect of earning him friends among the merchant class and the nobility, because it would allow him to reallocate wealth in ways that benefited his supporters. Furthermore, the formation of the new kingdom of England provided opportunities for the nobles and the royalty alike all throughout the kingdom. This was a gold rush, provided, of course, that you were able to take advantage of it. The truth is that this process of unification was an enormous moneymaker for well-positioned families. Lands and titles were moving rapidly, and because Athelstan was under a lot of pressure to quickly unite his lands and annex the new kingdoms, this meant that this was a particularly lucrative time for West Saxon nobles who could assure the king of their loyalty. And it's something that we've seen in the past. When Mercia was annexed, we saw West Saxon nobles suddenly expanding their wealth to a ridiculous degree, often, of course, to the detriment of the existing Mercian nobility. And with East Anglia, we're seeing the same thing. 
And even though our records are less clear with what was going on in Jorvik, we can assume, just based on the few glimpses we're getting, that the same thing was happening up there. So that's likely another method that Athelstan was using in his efforts to annex the north. But it also created a bit of a problem for him. As you might imagine, these appointments that the new royal families acquired were often handed down father to son. And that meant that the power that a king invested in his loyal followers soon became entrenched in that follower's dynasty. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Because how do you maintain loyalty with that dynasty? I mean, if you put your own people in charge of a foreign land, you're probably pretty secure at first. I mean, those are your friends that you're putting in charge. But what happens when that title passes down to their children? After all, that child would have been raised in the foreign land. So would they feel the same duty to the king that their father did? Especially considering the fact that they would have spent more time around the people that they were governing than they did with the people of Wessex. Basically, what was keeping them from going native and turning against the king? And that's not an academic question. This was a risk that existed all throughout England. Even the powerful Mercian nobles of Athelstan's day were often descendants of earlier land grants from annexation. For example, Athelstan Halfking, the elderman of East Anglia, was the scion of a West Saxon dynasty whose family could be traced back to the court of Alfred. And the reason why he was a Mercian noble was because his family acquired Mercian titles as part of the annexation. So is he West Saxon or is he Mercian? Furthermore, he was powerful even before he became the elderman of East Anglia. But now, he had a hell of a lot of land under his control. So what happens if he or his kid forgot that he owed fealty to the King of England and instead sided with the East Anglians or the Danes? I mean, this is the question that seems to have kept the ruling classes up at night. And one of their solutions to it was the royal court. Royal officers during this time held enormous amounts of power and prestige. And so while the position of elderman was significant, if you wanted to be truly successful, you needed to be part of the king's court. That's where the real money and influence was. And the closer you were to the king, the better your chances were of being the recipient of his largesse, if you had a good day. And we're not talking about getting a nice horse or something. We're talking about getting a shire. It was a hell of a motivator. And at the same time, because the king had control of who was or was not at court, if you misbehaved or displeased the king in any way, you could be ousted in an instant. So, if you're an ambitious noble, the thing that you'd want most was access to the royal court. And if you managed to acquire that access, you'd be living under the constant threat of losing it. And those two aspects kept the elderman in line at least mostly. But this social and economic insecurity, which itself was driven by the system of patronage and forfeiture, is the key behind much of the factionalism that we saw in Northumbria and Mercia, and it's also going to be what we'll soon see in England. The intense wealth concentration and zero-sum political culture created a system of incentives that forced this outcome repeatedly over the course of hundreds of years just keeps happening over and over again, and even the best of the rulers could only stave off the inevitable for so long. The fact is that in the face of a brutal systemic structure, individual gumption can only take you so far. Eventually, the system will get you. But for now, this system was being wielded in an effort to allow the process of annexation to continue, and to keep the nobility in line. Because even the nobles of Jorvik 
would have wanted access to the royal court. So even though we're in a rare moment of peace, and for the average everyday Englishman, this was probably a remarkably relaxing time since they weren't being called up to fight. In court, things were different because the fighters were starting to build their lines. And for the people involved, this was life or death stuff. Based on your behavior, the future of your entire dynasty could hang in the balance. And what was driving this entire structure, both the problems and the ham-fisted attempts at solving it, revolved around one thing. Wealth. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join all their other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.